Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Keeping Up with Kendrick. This is a special episode, though, because we are once again looking at another very familiar Kendrick, as in Kendrick Lamar, at least for the first leg of this episode, and his album To Pimp a Butterfly, which is, uh, this, this was really tough for us because this is probably one of the most like, critically acclaimed albums of all time. Reviewing something like that is a lot of pressure. So, Jeff, how did you feel about <laughs> how how's the pressure? <laughs> how's the pressure getting? This was intimidating because I remember when we were talking about this series right at the start. You know, keeping up with Kendrick. I like your rename there. Oh, did I mess it up? <laughs> Dude, you didn't mess it up. You improved it. Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but like when we were originally talking about this, I was like, as a joke. Let's start the first episode with a Kendrick Lamar review, but I specifically don't want to do To Pimp a Butterfly because we'll talk about that for an hour at least because this is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And like now that I've listened to it probably four or five times just in the last two days, it's, it's a masterpiece. I'm intimidated. This is, a really, this is going to be a really hard one to talk about because there's just so much. This may be a very long episode. I don't know yet. It's, it's good. What can I say? Like it's... I mean, I'm riding high on it, so I don't know if I can say right off the bat that this is one of my favorite albums ever, but like, this might actually be just one of the best albums I've ever listened to. All personal opinions aside, even though I really like this, I think this just, this is a masterpiece, just straight up. Yeah, for sure. Like the, I mean, I think, okay, I hate using this word, like when referring to like, you know, art or whatever, but it's like objectively, like there's so much thought put into this. To, into this album and you can just feel it even though even if you can't like relate to a lot of the stuff Kendrick talks about in the album and like maybe you don't even like jazz music that because it's a very jazz uh, influenced album right mm-hmm. you you have to admire the amount of creativity and work that was put into it from like a raw capacity um, it's very admirable I only know this as an anecdote but apparently like just to sort of speak to how how good and how potentially influential this album is. This was an influence on David Bowie, this album. Like this album influenced David Bowie's last album. He was like, you know what? I quite like what that Kendrick Lamar fella is doing. Let's do that on a black star. That's crazy. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Did they meet? Do you know if they like met up at all? I I don't know. I kind of think probably not, but Maybe. Oh, I don't know. Really cool. If Kendrick wants to come on the podcast and talk about <laughs> the time he met David Bowie, <laughs> that'd be great. That'd be greatly appreciated. You know what? Straight up, I'm going to put an open invitation. If you are Kendrick, Anna Kendrick, <laughs> Kendrick Lamar, any other Kendrick, reach out to us on Twitter. We'll put you on the podcast. Yeah. We'll allow we you on the it podcast. <laughs> but yeah, like the, I mean, I, I think part of what makes this album so great is especially like the themes that Kendrick interweaves in here is like there's so many like different themes that like are separate but they really coalesce in the album so it's not like a it's like just a how do I say this the album isn't just like dedicated to like a certain idea it's like a bunch of ideas because I remember reading that what Kendrick does is he kind of just like before he like even starts an album he just like writes his thoughts out and eventually coalesces them in a way that he likes these ideas and he feels like they mesh together in a good way and yeah like i mean the album is very like i guess a lot of people say it's like a very politically strong album which is like one of kendrick's strengths for sure but also Mm -hmm. it's a very personal album he deals with 
things like, I guess, self-importance, um, like, is he doing enough for his community, what it was like growing up, him being scared of his own influence, you know, stuff like that. And it's, and it all kind of delves into the, the name to Pimp a Butterfly too, is like a very, like, it sounds very unrelated, but like, it's, it's a very powerful message. Now, now yeah. that I've like listened to the album a lot, it makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely like, referenced a lot throughout the album and it builds a lot into the title if that makes sense and the cover for sure Mm -hmm. to sort of piggyback on a point you just made i noted when we talked about damn that damn just seemed very autobiographical and i'm starting to get the impression that that's just kind of kendrick style because this album also is very autobiographical i would say it's a little it's autobiographical in a slightly different way both Damn and To Pimp a Butterfly are very, they're both very political and very personal. But I would say this one is slightly more political and Damn is slightly more personal. And I am like very slightly because both of them have songs on them that straight up just talk about like Kendrick's place in the world and what he perceives as the world around him. But this one has a couple more songs that are very much like, this is his perception of his community where damn is a lot more stream of consciousness, I guess. This one seems a lot more deliberately deliberately focused, I would say. I don't know if that's the right words, but hopefully that makes sense. Well, I definitely noticed that a lot of this album is up to interpretation, but it's definitely much more obvious what the things Kendrick is trying to point out compared to damn for sure. And it's a mm-hmm. lot like it's a lot more straightforward. Too I I guess too it's like benefit critically if that makes sense even though damn is definitely a much more consumable album in terms of the type of music yeah. and stuff like that even though you're right like it, it does feel damn does feel more potentially personal but yeah like the <clears throat> the jazz influence here is extremely heavy and i mean the music's amazing but this is a very like non-radio album if that makes sense like there's i can't think of like maybe like king kunta is like very catchy and like there's a couple like what we got king kunta songs like all right and then maybe I are very catchy, but they're not complexion, very... Complexion, I would say, too. Complexion, yeah. I could maybe only see King Kunta on the radio. I can't see the other ones, like, commercially consumable that much, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And even King Kunta, like, King Kunta's a really angry song. I can see it on the radio, but, like, if, if King Kunta is your only impression of the album, you're getting... You're kind of getting the wrong impression of the album. Well, yeah, it's definitely, like, the most, I guess braggadocious part of the album like it's, mm-hmm. it's the high point of that and most aggressive and yeah you'd be missing a lot if you just listen to that and you're like okay this is the whole album because yeah that's like definitely the vibe is very different in that and that's the thing too like there's a lot of songs in this album but nothing feels and it's very long but nothing feels like filler like all the songs even though they're all very jazzy are very different and not just in terms of like instrumentals but like like kendrick the way like his delivery on some of these songs is like something like you've never heard before. Like in the song, what is it? Is it the song you where he, where he like uses like a drunken voice and he's yes. kind of like, I guess he's talking from his perspective, but like you can hear like the bottle clinking in the background. I actually had to check to make sure that was still Kendrick. Cause I was like, is this a feature from like someone I'm not familiar with, but <laughs> no, it's just Kendrick using a really good drunk voice. Yeah, and he's really good. Like, there's so many different times when he uh, he, he switches, like, his delivery, and it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, like, because that's not even, like, a short thing. Like, he full-on uses that voice for, like, a whole verse. And it's borderline annoying. Verse? I thought it was, like, 
half the song. Honestly, I thought that as soon as he hits that voice, it goes into a different song. It doesn't, but that was my first impression. Yeah, well, yeah, the vibe yeah. changes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and, and it wasn't just like a, like, it's annoying, but like also it's, but like in a good way, if that makes sense, like it makes sense, especially because like the, what he's talking about was like very personal. I think it was about like how he, he missed the, the death of his friend or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he felt like really guilty about that. Yeah. So like that, that was like a really powerful track and he, he does it a lot more too, like in other parts of the, the album where he kind of gets more like, I'd say damn, he, he really improved his singing. But this was much more interesting in terms of his like delivery. Like there were there mm-hmm. were types of delivery I hadn't really heard before on like songs before this. So yeah, mm-hmm. it was really cool. So I think I don't know. We're very late to this party. There, oh, everyone and their mom has dissected this album before us. <laughs> but uh, so <clears throat> like clearly, we could probably spend thirty minutes each on each individual song if we wanted to and were prepared to do that. So I don't really want to go through every single individual song. But we kind of have to, not every single one, but in order to talk about this album effectively, we're going to have to like focus in on certain songs. But before we do that, I wanted to very briefly go over like some highlights on this album. What what would you say are your top three songs? Why? And keep it brief. Because we'll go into more later. Oh, it's going to be tough. I'd say for sure, Wesley's Theory is like an amazing opener and like honestly one of the most like, one of my favorite songs, like ever. I think it's really mm-hmm. good. It has so much energy, and the production by the production with like Thundercat is like really, really good. Um, what else? I would say I just like I really like King Kunta. I think that's like really it's a really catchy song, but it's also very different. So I really appreciate that song. Third is either oh, uh, it's either between like I or. Maybe these walls are both really good songs too, and I love the mm-hmm. choruses and the um, momentum Hendrick brings to both of the songs is really good. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Um, I think for me, I mean, King Kunta is like number one for me, and at least in part, it's kind of just because I really like catchy songs, and I have had King Kunta stuck in my head for the last week now. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I just really like that. Well, I do love the lyrics. Like, it's this song is really angry, and like, I really like that. He's like sort of calling out the entire rap industry without naming names, which is interesting. And like, he does it also in just a really cool way. Like, it's blunt, but also it's just like really poetic. Also, it's got like a hell of a beat behind it. My second favorite is actually an interlude I found out uh, for free. I love that song because it's like it's mostly freeform jazz, which I love. But then like halfway through it, Kendrick jumps in with beat poetry, which is the weirdest thing on this album. And like, it's super good. The first time I heard it, I'm like, what is this? And the second and third times, like, I love Wesley's Theory. It's a great song. But I'm always like right near the end of Wesley's Theory. I'm like, oh, here comes for free. I'm, I'm excited now. So uh, my second favorite would be for free. And then I think the last one is how much a dollar cost. Cause that song, it, it like really slows down. It's a lot more mellow than the rest of the album, but the way that like, it's still big. I don't know how to describe it, but it just kind of feels like the entire album up to that point, the way that that song is delivered, uh, it kind of feels like in the context of that song, the entire album has been building up to that, even though, the entire album, like every song is its own thing. It's got so much going on. But then 
uh, how much a dollar cost in the song within itself kind of feels like the culmination of everything. And it, it makes the whole song come across so much more powerful, in my opinion. Cool. Yeah. I, I like how you point out like the slow, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any slow songs in my like favorite songs, but like they come at the right time, if that makes sense. And they're never boring because mm-hmm. like they are so lyrically dense and it, it lets you sit back almost. And the jazz, I think really helps it too. Cause it, it feels, I don't know, jazz and poetry just like work together. I don't know. It, yeah. It creates a vibe and I, I really like the vibe he sets for, cause even like a, like what there's like, there's an, <laughs> there's an interlude here for sale. That's like five minutes long. And it's like, never seen an interlude that long but it's like it's really relaxing to listen to like it has the has the feeling of an interlude because it's such a relaxing like break in the album if that makes sense even though it's so long mm-hmm. those interludes because those are like the jazziest sections weirdly enough the interludes but like i feel like the way that they are on the album and the way they're placed on the album kind of makes this whole album feel to pimp a butterfly is one that you mostly have to listen to just on, on its own Like you have to listen to that front to back. And like after listening to it a couple of times, yeah, I think you could listen to each of the songs in here. They're all good individually. But like with those interludes, if you listen to it uh, front to back with those interludes and the way that the songs are placed and stuff, this album feels like a whole experience. And I really like that. And I think that the jazzy bits especially really help that. Because like King Kunta could be a radio single just in terms of like, how catchy it is and just how it's delivered that could just be a radio single but then like it takes on a different meaning coming after wesley's theory and and for free Mm -hmm. and then with institutionalized right after it like it just flows together in a way that it's like i should be reading this as a book i mean obviously it's audio audioly very very pleasing to to get out my critic thesaurus. yeah no yeah the track order is extremely important in this especially with the i mean do, do you want to talk actually do you want to go through the songs because i also want to talk about the whole the way uh each song like the poem that kendrick's like slowly building up throughout the whole album uh which mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. i guess yeah. climaxes with like immortal man where uh i guess he he displays like because like the poem slowly increases in length and each the mm-hmm. next song that has that is like relatively relevant to the next leg in the poem, if that makes sense. Um, when it's right. introduced, and then like at the end, we get the whole thing um, with Mortal Man, and it kind of transitions into like an interview with Tupac mm-hmm. from Kendrick's perspective. Even though, so, like I think basically what happened was Kendrick chopped up some answers from a Tupac interview from the '90s. And then he kind of like sampled it in here. And like, so he played as the interviewer, I guess. Because mm-hmm. obviously Tupac was a huge influence to Kendrick. Kendrick kind of sees him as as like upholding his legacy in a way, I think. Right. So it was really cool to see. Uh, I mean, that honestly, that moment is really shocking. Even though I knew it was coming because I've, I've already listened to this album before. It is really like a mind-blowing moment in terms of how it transitions and how like how the whole poem builds up throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think it's really cool that Kendrick didn't ever chop off, like, at the end of a song, like, sometimes an artist, like, they might have cut the poetry stuff out and put it in, like, a, a skit or something like that, so that yeah. they could make the, the song, like, a radio single or more listenable, mm-hmm. but it was, like, each one was, like, vital to the song, and that's what really, like, the confidence behind that really builds up to the end, uh, 
and it really feels like a great way to end the album, I guess, with the entire poem. And then also, I guess, him basically asking Tupac for like advice on how to deal with the themes presented in mm-hmm. the album as a whole. So yeah, that was really cool. So sorry, did you want to go through some of the songs individually? Yeah, for sure. I feel like we have to start with what's <laughs> this theory, obviously. <laughs> like, it's such a... There's something about album openers that I think they're extremely important just to set the vibe. And this really, like, it, it just comes in. Like, it has that sample at first, which is, like, a really good vibe. And then it transitions into, like, the main song. And it just comes at you, like, instantly, you know? Mm-hmm. Kendrick's going really hard. The chorus, I think it's... I don't know who the chorus is sung by. It's not, it's not uh, Kendrick. I think it's... Well, George Clinton is featured. I don't know if he's a singer. I think like Kendrick does sing the chorus in part, but I feel like there was another voice where he like distorted his voice or something. Thundercat and George Clinton. Okay, cool. But yeah, and like the production by Thundercat, I don't know much about him, but I've listened to a few of his songs. Like he's an amazing producer and like, I don't know how much influence he had on the song specifically compared to like, because I think there's probably multiple producers, but like, like the synths on this are like, I don't know. I love it so much. It makes it feel so grand and big, mixed within, mixed in with like the bass line, and oh my god, it's it's just really good. And yeah, and like Kendrick's just like the cherry on top of the beat. So I just want to add to that real quick. This is produced at least in part. The producers on this song are Flying Lotus, Flippa Coulson, Soundwave, and Thundercat. It says that the main producers are Flying Lotus and Flippa Coulson. I don't know if you know Flying Lotus very much. I'm not that familiar with Flying Lotus, but I just sort of happened upon a Flying Lotus album um, a couple of years ago when I was in HMV. It is some of the weirdest, like, avant-garde jazz that's still, like, mainstream viable that I think I've ever heard. Yeah. And so, Wesley's theory is, like, it's not super, super, super avant-garde, but I am not at all surprised that this is Flying Lotus. Mm. Oh, okay, cool. So maybe I, I should give Flying Lotus more credit as well. I think they, they, they worked a lot with Kendrick on this album, right? I think so. Um, like, in a lot of tracks. So, yeah. And then, yeah, after all this energy, the transition into For Free, which is a much more low-key track, is, like, I guess very... Um, it's abrupt, abrupt, but, like, in a really good way, if that makes sense. Because, it mm-hmm. like, there's so much energy at the start. Well, I think the two of those together especially are just like explosive as an album opener. As you said, this one starts off with like a night with like really cool vibes and then immediately just jumps into Wesley's theory. And then I've already talked about how uh, for free, there's so much going on. And to me, like for a little bit of behind the scenes, I'm currently in Toronto walking around the city listening to Kendrick Lamar and like for free is super big city vibes like there's there's so many instruments going on it sounds like a street performance it's just really cool yeah sorry and, i don't uh, know what's going with that no that's like <laughs> i liked it and like the, the i mean the themes are pretty correlated as well between wesley's theory and for free in terms of like because like in wesley's theory he's talking a lot about uh i guess the first part is more braggadocious as like he's like the one of the biggest rappers right now and then the second part is more he takes on a different perspective. He does that a lot in this album. He takes a lot of different perspectives when he raps. Um, so that's why it's like sometimes really hard to understand what angle he's coming from, if that makes sense. Well, with Wesley's theory, at the beginning, like he's talking kind of as young Kendrick, 
Because, like, mm-hmm. he starts talking about what he's going to do when he makes it big. But then by the end of Wesley's theory, not even by the end, probably by verse two, he's talking as, like, current Kendrick, where he has made it big. And, like, his priorities have shifted drastically. Mm-hmm. Because of the way he set his priorities earlier on, like, was was that actually a good thing to do? Because, like, he's been sort of taken advantage of in the industry in certain ways, too. Yeah. Well, one of the perspectives is... Uh... I mean, I, th- I think it, it can be interpreted multiple ways. I saw it as like m- almost like the music industry talking to him, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, and using him. So I guess it's like the same thing. But yeah, and that kind of goes into For Free as well, where he's, I guess, it's a lot about like his self-worth and where he's at now and he can't be like used for stuff, at least ideally anymore, if that makes sense. He's mm-hmm. more in control of like what he wants to do. And then yeah, and then we go into King Kunta, which is like, I'd say it's like, relatively straightforward beat and uh very catchy and like it's i guess it's a good swing back up from the interlude uh where like i remember you saying what he's he's calling a lot of people out right kind of yeah and actually like it's sort of i think wesley's theory is wesley's theory is almost like an overture for this album like the more i think about it wesley's theory is so good especially in the context of this album Mm -hmm. because like in wesley's theory like in a way, he's talking about his entire career and like different perspectives from within his entire career. And then in For Free, you know, he can't get taken advantage of anymore. He's not going to do anything for free anymore. Not, I don't know if he ever did, but like he's talking about that. And then in King Kunta, uh, it's, it's sort of taking on the perspective and calling out people who like, I mean, this might be a simplistic reading of it. But King Kunta kind of calls out, among other people, kind of calls out people who, like, weren't around and, like, didn't support him when he was smaller. But now they're, like, now that he's on top of the world, they all want to, like, ride the Kendrick train, right? And, like, both of these are just delving more, at least in a way, I guess you said this can be interpreted in a lot of ways. But both For Free and King Kunta really delve deeper into... um, just aspects that are already kind of explored at least at some length in Wesley's theory. Yeah. And then institutionalized kind of gets into, I don't know. It's, it's a very, it's another low key song again. There's like a lot of features on this one too, but it talks about, I don't know how it, at least it feels like it's, it's supposed to be about, him taking action if that makes sense like the chorus in this is like shit don't change if you don't wipe your ass or something like from the perspective of like what his grandma would say to him i guess sorry this is institutionalized yeah because i think kendrick feels a lot of like responsibility given his position to influence change in like his community through his music and well not just through his music but through other means as well but i guess like because music is his passion specifically music and that obviously involves because it's very easy to like I feel like he's saying like it's very easy to say things, but like he, he needs to he wants to find a way to actually like influence change and, and make it and he might be worried that like music isn't like enough for him at least. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah, and like the it's very low key and like I love the flutes on this. I think they're flutes. It's a very mesmerizing song, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also like I don't know, I feel like it needs to be mentioned. This song has Snoop Dogg on it, and Snoop Dogg basically like Snoop Dogg's verse is all at the end, but he brings it up. He brings up like a tiny bit of it earlier on, which I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but also 
like it sort of mirrors a little bit what Kendrick's doing throughout the entire album with that poem. But like, I just thought that was kind of weird because Snoop's on it. He's on the he's on the song twice, but like he just repeats the same verse twice, except not quite. Yeah, it wasn't really a verse. It, it just felt my, more like well, the way he the way he's delivering it kind of felt like he's. It felt like he was introducing Kendrick like a like like a narrator in a story almost mm-hmm. before Kendrick starts his verse, and then he I think he ends the song with like a more complete refrain. I think. Maybe refrain, I don't know. But yeah, it, it's a nice little touch, and it was nice to have Snoop on it. And uh, yeah, but I, I like, I guess I kind of like the setting it it sets before Kendrick's first happens. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, and he has a very smooth voice for it, so it worked well. I love how, I, I also want to say, like, I love how the features, I feel like the features like don't have that much room in the album, but when they are used, it's used very well, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, very minimalist features, but like, like for example, like Snoop wasn't really used for like a full verse, but it was used in a very interesting way. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially because like, well, this happens a lot in pop, especially like when you get Snoop on your song. There's definitely a lot of songs where it's like, the Snoop verse is what's selling the song, or mm-hmm. like it just is the song. But in this, I didn't even realize this was Snoop until like my second or third listen through. I didn't know who else it was, but I'm like, oh, okay. And then the third time, I'm like, this sounds a little bit like Snoop Dogg. And then I looked up and I'm like, oh, shit, it is. And he's only yeah. on there really briefly. Yeah, it's very subtle. But also, like, I, I think it's just smart, too, because, like, I think Kendrick has so much to say. And it's just, like, to be honest, like, there's very few rappers that could, like, outbar Kendrick or, like, even compete with Kendrick, especially on his own album, that, like, it's probably smarter for Kendrick to take up a lot more space, if that makes sense. Well, and also we talked about this on Damn, a bit, on our Damn review a bit, but like Kendrick's a really good rapper, as you literally just said. But like when he, he brings in features and he'll bring in big features, but like even on Damn, the features weren't super important. Well, I mean, they're, they're a lot more important here because I think that there is, it's really important that he has like Thundercat and George Clinton and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, like those specific features especially, those couldn't be anyone else. Those have to be those people. And like, they're important. It's important why he picked those people for that too. They're there to enhance Kendrick, not to enhance album sales or anything. They're there yeah. because like, he wants them there and they will support and they support, like what, what they're saying is supporting his message, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, they all has meaning. Yeah, and then well, speaking of features in, in these walls, we we get Thundercat back, and also Bilal and Anna Weiss, but I think just mostly provide backing vocals, right? Pretty some of these, much, yeah. Like, some of the choruses and stuff, because they're also on institutionalized. But yeah, these walls is, is really good. I mm. love that song a lot. It again brings so much energy, and I love the chorus. I I, I love the. Th- themes that like these walls is like interpreted in a lot of different ways and also kind of delves into like there's there's a line at the end where it, it kind of gets a lot more personal where Kendrick's basically talking about he he doesn't like or he's scared about using that he's using his influence to uh I guess have sex with this woman whose husband is in jail or something like that and he knows he knows the husband and he's afraid of I guess using his influence to hurt people, I guess. And it gets really introspective at the end. But yeah, I, I think it's like a very interesting w- direction to go 
that a lot of like a lot of artists don't always think about the the consequences of like their actions due to their position if that makes sense and it sounds like kendrick feels a lot of guilt sometimes from it but also it's like a, a big like lure for him to exercise that influence obviously right yeah it's sort of a recurring theme on the album i think every theme on this album ends up being a recurring theme but like yeah just he's kind of worried about well as you're saying like he's worried about is he using his influence the right way and that's what mm-hmm. a lot of this album is yeah and that's also like a cool like shift from institutionalized where he is questioning like how to best use that influence i guess Mm-hmm. And then, and then, yeah, you is. I think we talked about that earlier. It's a very interesting song, just based on Kendrick's drunken uh, delivery of it, <laughs> of, of his verse, and the story yeah. he tells in that is very personal, obviously. And this whole thing is also it's the the delivery. I mean, just aside from the drunken delivery, because that happens like probably halfway through. But like even before that, this is already such a weird song, which is really cool. But it's like this has like a weird beat. His delivery is kind of all over the place, like deliberately so, but very strange. And then halfway through, it basically becomes an entirely different song. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, like I, I don't because it's not really like a beat switch, right? But like the beat gets minimalized, I think. And then he, cha- I'm and he pretty changes. Pretty sure it is a beat switch. The, I could be oh, okay. wrong, but like I think so. But yeah, it's a it's a very personal song, and it kind of links in with like I guess the end of these walls. Mm-hmm. And then we get into all right, which is much more of a, I guess, happy anthem again. Yeah. Full of like I guess kind of joy, but it, it's like bittersweet joy, if that makes sense. I'm uh, of course it's a happy anthem. The chorus on this one is sung by Pharrell Williams. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't know that. Like, well, because he's not featured on the song, right? So I didn't, I didn't know he was ever on the song until I, I read the, the genius page with the lyrics. Mm. But yeah, Pharrell honestly provides a really good chorus. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, it really uh, adds a lot to it. And I love, I honestly love how he's. It's like a, like it's a subtle feature in terms of credits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes it a lot more interesting for some reason. But yeah, it's a very. It's a very fun song, and it's also, uh, you know, one of the more popular ones on the album, probably because it's one of the more radio-friendly ones, for sure. Yeah. But yeah. And then we have another interlude for sale. It's like the five-minute interlude. Yeah, this is weird. This album, where it has interludes, the interludes are, like, sometimes longer than the actual songs, which is weird. I'm like, why call them interludes? Yeah, this this is longer than, like, about half of the songs, like, the real yeah. songs. But yeah, it's, it's another, like, very vibey song and even though it's five minutes it's it's like you can just kind of space out and it's a nice i guess kind of like you're riding the vibe off all right mm-hmm. like because this is also like a more slow song but it's more friendly if that makes sense well and this one similar to for free this has him delivering his lyrics in like a kind of like a poetic style but like it's not beat poetry like the like for free for free is like musically really eccentric and then when he's doing his delivery it's very like every line is deliberate it's kind of aggressive not really it's just sort of like very firm Mm -hmm. and this is a lot more this is a lot softer delivery like it's it's like he's reading a poem to you it's not quite rapping and it's definitely not beat poetry it's like on but it's also not singing either it's like he's reading something to you yeah well it's almost like it's, it's not whispering but it's like yeah it's a very soft voice 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a vibe. I like it. I don't really know what it's trying to say. I can't remember. It sounds kind of like a, a romance song, you know, because the chorus is like, I want you or something like that. Yeah, this is one that uh, I didn't look too much more into, and maybe I should have. Because, like, for me, this part of the album, right around here, uh, I'm going to be honest, I kind of zone out for, like, these three songs. Not entirely, I still listen to them, but these are the ones that stick in my mind the least, mm-hmm. I would say. It's, like, starting from For Sale. Yeah, like, For Sale, Mama Hood, Politics, I think they're all much more, I guess, yeah, a lot quieter. Again, more introspective, a lot more poetry. Like, I'm reading, like, for free, I forgot about this. He, he talks about this character, Lucy, who I guess can... It can be interpreted as like someone he loves, but apparently in this in this case, it's also interpreted as Lucifer, which is isn't that like Lucifer is like a name for the devil. Yeah, yeah, and it talks a lot about being tempted by like the fame and the fortune. I'm I'm a little surprised we haven't brought that up until now because talking about rap and the temptations of the rap game as like sex is a big theme on this song it comes up or not on this song on this album it comes up so often wesley's theory a lot of the a lot lyrically a lot of it is directly compares the rap game to like an ex-girlfriend which Mm -hmm. is i don't know if that's what lucy is but like lucy would definitely fit with that theme as well yeah yeah and i actually wonder if that has to do like when we were talking about the song earlier and institutionalized where he's sleeping with one girl, but like her her husband, or I guess her husband or boyfriend or whatever is in jail. I wonder if that's like a real person or if that's also a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, actually you're right. It, like we don't know for sure, but that, that would be a really interesting way to interpret it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then what next we kind of got Mama and Hood Politics. Like, like we said earlier, they're much more slow songs. I, I wasn't entirely sure what, like obviously I think mama was very like i don't know it, it felt like more grounded in his roots i guess I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to say it like he's he he mentions like returning home at the last part of for sale so i wonder like is what what is like i because I, I think he needs it's like a i would say he needs time to to reflect on his influence and and the and the leer of all the all the his fame and fortune has to offer Mm -hmm. um so like just from the title i'm assuming that it it kind of he's thinking back to like his core values if that makes sense right but yeah i i honestly i can't say much about mama or hood politics yeah no i'm i know they're very deep songs i just it would take me a while to like get through it and properly be able to like talk about it if that makes sense yeah and i think Kind of similar, at least in my opinion, for um, how much a dollar cost. Like I said, it is one of my favorite songs on this album, but it's, this is like, to me, how much a dollar cost kind of feels like, it kind of feels like the whole album is building to it. And then when he does this song, it's like, oh yeah, this is the important part. Pay attention. And like, I'm not going to say I didn't pay attention, but this song you could write a thesis on. There's this is like his mission statement in on this album, or at least it feels like it. Yeah, it's a lot of the songs on the album, but yeah, true. Yeah, um, but yeah, after that, like really, I guess, like deep leg, like I'd say complexion. I, I mean, complexion's obviously like a pretty 
I mean, every song on this album is deep, but this is a much more, I guess, catchy, I guess, song. We're back. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, they feature Rhapsody, which I think is a, a singer, and she has some, like, I think she has a verse? I can't remember. But she, she has, she has, like, a very nice, like, voice. I mean, there's not many, like, there's not much singing on this album, so it's, like, kind of, like, a nice, I guess, change of pace from mm-hmm. the other parts of it, for sure. I don't mean to cut us short here, but like, so, well, so far as, as we've been moving forward, I've noticed like we both have a little less to say. And do you have any thoughts on just that in general? Like, do you think that it would be fair to say, and you can say no, that the beginning of this album is better than the end of it? I'd say musically, it's much more interesting if you are not thinking about the lyrics. I think the themes definitely get much more deeper for like the last like I guess the second third of it or no mm-hmm. like the middle leg because personally I, I I was I think I said this on damn boy I I much more I get I, I have a trouble listening to lyrics and I much I get much more into like the production values mm-hmm. and those songs are much more simple so it's harder for me to like like I, I need to listen to these songs a lot a lot of times to really get into them and grasp them but then like I, I guess after these songs like the later we kind of get into more some more catchy so the black or the berry is a very catchy song but like it kind of feels more like the beginning of the album uh, same thing with i i is a in a similar vein to always a very upbeat anthem that um from the title i it's all about like kendrick's kind of like feeling better about himself and mm-hmm. i mean the, the isn't the chorus literally like i love myself <laughs> like I think it is, yeah. Yeah, so like it, it, it kind of like wraps the album. It's a, it's a nice like penultimate song, if, if I may. What's the mm-hmm. second one? But yeah, it, it kind of uh, shows that Kendrick has grown a lot, and he is throughout this experience he, of the album, he, he is more willing to embrace himself and be proud of himself, despite all the, you know, conflict, internal conflict, external conflict, and doubt that he and displays when with many of the slower songs for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, just to answer my question earlier uh, for for me, I kind of asked that as a trick question. I don't think the end of this album is like worse than the beginning of it, but I think I agree with what you said where like, especially in the middle part, it gets more lyrically dense, which is still good. It's just, it's where I kind of tune out a bit because I like the lyrics and I like going through them. Like, I wanted to very briefly read through the genius page of this uh, before we started talking about this. So like a half an hour ago, I started on Wesley's theory and it would take me a half an hour minimum to go through just Wesley's theory. This is a lyrically extremely dense album Mm -hmm. and it only gets more so, especially near the middle sections. And then at the end, like mortal man is mortal man is almost just like half of mortal man is the interview. And the other half is like, just a lot of talking as well yeah not not just a lot of talking there's like also some really cool jazz music that plays the beginning of this album starts so explosively and like it really culminates at the end but like it's an entire journey to get there and it's um the the easy tracks to listen to like the the really poppy ones are mostly near the beginning which doesn't say anything about the quality of the album. It's just like, those are the ones that are easy to listen to. So, I mean, it, I guess it's not surprising that I've listened to the beginning of the album a lot more than I've listened yeah, to the Yeah, same, same. 
yeah, it's much easier to talk to about because we have mm-hmm. listened to it more. So I guess to conclude, like definitely like I want to keep listening to this album and hopefully get more and more from it. Like there's, this is definitely a grower, even though like on first listen, it's amazing. Oh yeah. It's not, I guess an album that I can consistently listen to over and over again, but it's, it's just such like, it's so iconic that like I would try to only save it for times when I'm really like, I dedicate time to it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, like, this isn't sure. like a casually pop. On. I'm just going to casually pop on to Pimp a Butterfly and, like, listen to it. No, you you want to have the time to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. I'd compare and it, it to, like... it definitely deserves it. It's, like, it's like in the way, like, The Godfather, it's an amazing movie. I wouldn't really watch it that many times just because it's, like, a very intense and, like, deep movie. You wouldn't watch The Godfather on, like, CTV with all the commercials and, you know, while you're cooking dinner or something. Yeah, yeah. You, you devote time to watch The Godfather. Mm-hmm. You devote time to watch, to, uh, to listen to To Pimp a Butterfly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say that's just what makes it, like, so mm-hmm. special, if that makes sense. It's not background music. And you almost want to listen to it that way just to appreciate the amount of work Kendrick put into it. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a great album. Such a fresh sound for hip-hop, at least. It's going to be tough for Kendrick to ever top this i'm doubtful he can just because this was so like this this is basically like his because no one was expecting it i mean people were expecting an amazing album but i think this really exceeded a lot of expectations and it'd be tough to do that again after this album if that makes sense even if it's just as good for what it's worth i think he doesn't need to and he seems to know that because like damn doesn't even try to top this album it never it doesn't try to be comparable at all it's just like a different album Mm -hmm. so like he just talks about things in a different way he like explores different themes um kind or explores the same themes in a different way and like he just makes something very different i'm i'm really glad he doesn't he didn't try to do to pimp a butterfly again because this album is like this is a once in a lifetime album. Like if Kendrick goes on an, uh, on a hiatus for ten years and then he comes back with "To Pimp a Butterfly" too, like it's not going to happen. That's that's no. not something you can do. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it would almost go against the themes of the album to <laughs> a sequel. Actually, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Did we rate them? Is that something we did last time? I think we were really close to doing that. And then I said, like, it doesn't make sense to rate Damn because first off, we're coming into it super late. And like, yeah, we can tell you it's good, but people already know that. And so, you know, with To Pimp a Butterfly, also, everyone knows it's good. Do you want me to Mm -hmm. slap a rating on it? 10 out of 10, masterpiece, whatever. It doesn't matter. This is a great album. Just go listen to it if you haven't. I wouldn't really be able to rate it honestly it feels like beyond that if that makes sense so yeah yeah thank you Kendrick Lamar for another amazing album so we're gonna we're gonna come back after a short break to what is now already our longest episode ever (laughs) I wanted to read one last thing to you it's actually something a good friend had wrote describing my world it says, the caterpillar is a prisoner to the streets that conceived it. Its only job is to eat or consume everything around it in order to protect itself from this mad city. While consuming this environment, the caterpillar begins to notice ways to survive. One thing it notices is how much the world shuns him, but praises the butterfly. The butterfly represents the talent, 
the thoughtfulness and the beauty within the caterpillar. But having a harsh outlook on life, the caterpillar sees the butterflies weak and figures out a way to pimp it to its own benefits. Already surrounded by this mad city, the caterpillar goes to work on the cocoon which institutionalizes him. He can no longer see past his own thoughts. He's trapped. While trapped inside these walls, certain ideas take root, such as going home and bringing back new concepts to this mad city. The result? Wings begin to emerge, breaking the cycle of feeling stagnant. Finally free, the butterfly sheds light on situations that the caterpillar never considered, ending the internal struggle. Although the butterfly and caterpillar are completely different, they are one and the same. What's your perspective on that? Hey there, if you're listening to this podcast ad, first off, you've got great taste in the podcast. Kudos to you. But secondly, you probably like movies, watching them, thinking about them, analyzing them, and reviewing them. And while the tales we see on the big screen do merit discussion, I think that's only half the story. Why do we see so many sequels instead of original films? What determines which films get sequels in the first place? Is there more to the directors making a big hullaboo about seeing their films in theaters than on streaming? And beyond the obvious social good, why is making more diverse films important? The answer to all these questions and more can be found on my podcast, The Box Office Watch, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. For better or worse, Hollywood is the business, and which films are profitable and which aren't uh, determines what kind of films get greenlit and which ones don't. Each week, I go over the box office charts to understand which films are on that path to profitability and which ones aren't, as well as to understand any major headlines in the movie industry that might affect those bottom lines. I help you understand industry terms like exhibitor splits, multipliers, and per theater averages. And honestly, the story of how a film grew wings and flew at the box office or fumbled around and flopped can sometimes be more engrossing than the actual story on screen, in my opinion. Box Office Watch can be found on all major podcast stores, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe, and I hope to catch you there. And remember, our watch goes on. Okay, so we're back to talk about another couple of movies. But first, I had a question for you, Pierre. This question is mostly going to be about me, but like, I'm going to ask because I'm interested to, I'm interested to know your answer to this. When was the first time that you were cognizant or like conscious of Anna Kendrick as an actor? Mm, probably, damn, that's a good question, actually. Probably Scott Pilgrim, I think, was probably the first movie she stuck out to me, if that makes sense. Okay. I knew about her, um, but I watched that Pilgrim movie late too, so I was like 2014 or something. So mm-hmm. I think that was it. I can't remember anything else. Because I definitely saw her in Scott Pilgrim and in a movie we're going to talk about actually in the next episode, Into the Woods, before I like really knew or who she was or paid attention. Like she was at those points when I saw her, she was just kind of another name in the credits. 
And going back to those movies, I've really liked her in those movies. I even liked her in those movies then, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like, oh, that's Anna Kendrick. I was like, oh, she's neat. But like the first time I really, that she really like stuck out to me as an actor was actually in, I believe 2015 in the movie Pitch Perfect 2. That's probably the first time I was like really cognizant of her as an actor because I mean, in a way, Pitch Perfect was kind of her big break. She'd been, as we've talked about, she's been in a lot of movies before that. But in Pitch Perfect, she's like, she's the star, essentially. There's, you know, a couple of other people that really star in this movie. But like, it's Anna Kendrick's story. Especially, that's especially nice for me on this, uh, on these episodes. Because so far, you know, every week I ask myself, like, is it worth it for us to be doing an Anna Kendrick podcast if we're just talking about minor roles? And like, yes, it is. Absolutely. But it's weird because, you know, we haven't talked, we've only talked about one movie where she's had an actual big part. And today we're finally going to talk about movies where she is the star. And arguably, this is like her big break movie that we're talking about today. So anyway, we are talking about Pitch Perfect. And I think we can, I was going to say we can draw a little bit of a parallel to, to Pimp a Butterfly with this. Barely, but a little bit. Because I would argue that even though To Pimp a Butterfly wasn't Kendrick Lamar's big break, straight up he says, he references Don't Kill My Vibe on the album. And like, I would say that Don't Kill My Vibe was maybe not his big break, but that was like his second big single. So like, you know, Kendrick is a known entity before To Pimp a Butterfly, but To Pimp a Butterfly like launched him into orbit. It was like incredible. When that came out, like I didn't even pay attention to Kendrick Lamar until basically this year. And I know about him regardless because I know To Pimp a Butterfly. Everybody does. And I would say that like, it's, it's at least comparable. I mean, we've talked about it before. We're going backwards on Kendrick Lamar and forwards on Anna Kendrick. In a way, these are both movies that like, these are both like entities, I guess. One's an album, one's a movie that really launched them into the spotlight in a way they had never been there before. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, yeah, Anna Kendrick's, she really showed, I guess, showcased in this that she could lead a, a movie. Like, I mean, being the face of a, a trilogy, especially in an ensemble cast is like quite the feat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and these weren't small movies. Like, I mean, th- I think they were budgeted pretty small at first, but I mean, these these really took off and they were pitch perfect, I guess. Influence-wise was honestly, like potentially a big, gave a big push to um, acapella clubs all, all across, at least North America, I'm pretty sure. Well, I don't know if you remember this. Pitch Perfect came out at the tail end of the acapella craze. Before Pitch Perfect, there was Glee, and uh, High School Musical as well, which wasn't acapella, but like high school themed musical. And like, there were a bunch of these smaller things. I think there were probably two or three different shows about Glee clubs. The only big one is Glee, but like there were other ones in between. And like, acapella was suddenly very cool again, or at least like in vogue. And um, Pitch Perfect came out kind of at the tail end. And it was both a celebration of acapella building off of those things. And also because it was at the tail end, there was enough to go on at that point where it could actually parody acapella shows at the same time, because pitch perfect is a straight up comedy where something like Glee is played very straight. 
in in Pitch Perfect, they regularly acknowledge how like actually <laughs> not cool acapella is, and not cool in like when I say that I don't mean in like a really problematic way. It's just like no one actually likes this, or at least like other people that aren't in acapella club think that you're kind of a loser for being an acapella club. Yeah, it's I guess very meta, but then also it it does make it. Well, I, I guess it kind of it kind of uses the fact that it is kind of for <laughs> for losers as as shown in the movie to make it more of like a you know like one of those misfits misfits yeah. kind of getting along story. because um, like even Anna Kendrick when she comes in in the first one, she's like, "I this sounds really stupid," but she is slowly convinced to do it, um, or kind of almost in a way forced to do it by her dad, and then learns to get into it because it, it's a place for her to to feel welcome and be part of something bigger and to have friends. It's a family movie. It's a movie yeah. about family. It's another movie about family, yeah. We're mm-hmm. on a roll for those. It's quite a unique series, and I can understand, I guess, why it's so consumable. I mean, it was. I watched this when I was sick, and it's a very easy watch, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, very, very simple story, some catchy songs, pretty short, doesn't take itself seriously, like you said earlier. So, yeah, they're very... They're very easy, and I can understand why people like to watch it. Maybe not, I wouldn't watch this in theaters, but very, very good streaming movie, I guess. Actually, I did watch the second and third ones in theaters, and I've talked about it a bit on this show before, but my least favorite movie of all time is Avengers Age of Ultron. Mm. And I watched this shortly after I watched Avengers Age of Ultron in theaters, and Pitch Perfect 2 was hugely refreshing because it was just a nice, light, enjoyable movie that was pretty funny. And like, I liked it a lot. And it was, um, it really helped me get over the incredible disappointment that was Avengers Age of Ultron. Like, I was actually destroyed after Avengers Age of Ultron. And <laughs> I hated that. And Pitch Perfect 2 was a really good rebound movie. And then I went and saw Mad Max Fury Road, which was incredible. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good, like increase in like expectations i guess because yeah it's not they're not great movies but like you kind of get what you expect yeah and you're kind of pleasantly surprised when it might be like a little better than you expect to in some cases mm-hmm. i guess do you do you want to give us your like top <laughs> three moments i guess in the pitch perfect series top three moments in the pitch perfect or series. highlights i mean I guess. realistically my top three moments are all going to be tropes that come up in every single one of these movies. I think for me, the number one is probably the uh, the acapella battle, basically, in the second movie, where they have the Green Bay Packers. I remember sitting in the sitting in the theater and they're announcing the teams, and it's like we've got uh, we've got the Bellas, we've got the other acapella team from their university, we've got the team of the acapella team that's in comprised entirely of people who graduated from their university we have the bad guys and the green bay packers and it's just legit the green bay packers that all showed up for this movie for some reason like i remember laughing so hard at that in the theater so that'd probably be my number one moment oh riff off that's what they're called Mm. and i think that in general the riff offs in this movie are some of the strongest elements of these movies except I think they get progressively worse to the point where the third one is actually, I would even call that the opposite of a highlight. It's actually like one of the worst parts of the third movie, but there's a lot of bad parts of the third movie. And I'm sure we'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. My second highlight would probably be, I'm going to say the end of the first movie, like the final competition where they just do really well. 
like it's a nice like triumphant moment and then i'm gonna cheat a little bit for my for my top for my number three moment which is just like every time michael higgins and elizabeth banks are on screen and i guess specifically probably the time that they're announcing in the beginning of the second movie and like it's the the inciting incident where something very stupid happens to one of the Bellas and apparently it's national news. Uh, but like just them as announcers, I think they are the best parts of these movies. Yeah. I just think they're the funniest thing. Cause like they're both just really good comedians and they bring in, they bring exclusively that energy in and like, they seem very influenced by like Christopher guest documentaries, specifically best in show. This reminds me a lot of best in show. I think John Michael Higgins may have also been in some Christopher Guest mockumentaries. I don't think he was in Best in Show, but like their energy, uh, they they just work off each other so well, and they are actually hilarious every time they're on screen together. Why don't uh, Why don't you go? Your point leads into my point. I my highlight is probably the the announcers. Mm-hmm. Their chemistry is insanely good. Like they have so much chemistry. I think. I love the scene at the end. I think it's the end of the third one in the post credit scene where like, cause they had all these like confessions of love between some of the characters. And then like, was it, what'd you, what'd you say his name was? John Michael, John Michael Higgins, Michael Higgins, his character turns to Elizabeth Banks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth Banks. Um, is like, it says, I love you, which would be like a very cliche way to end it. But then like the way, like what they pause for a sec and then they both start laughing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just love that. Cause it just, I guess defines their relationship so much because they're oddly extremely close, but also like, I don't know. It, it, they're they're, well, they're just really fun. Making fun of each other. I think my favorite joke <laughs> from the series is where Elizabeth Banks is like talking about, I think it's the, in, at the end of the second Pitch Perfect movie, she's talking about, she goes like, oh, the Bellas have touched everyone in this audience. They've touched me. And John Michael Higgins goes, well, everyone has touched you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I love like like those insults. Like they don't even really react to it just because it's so expected. Like mm-hmm. between them, you know. And I think that adds a lot to their relationships. Yeah, definitely my highlight. They were consistently funny throughout like all three movies. Mm-hmm. Second would probably be I. I really liked Keegan Michael Key in the second one. I thought yes. his role as the the music producer was actually really funny. Mm-hmm. It felt kind of straight out of like a Key and Peele sketch almost, but like he was in it just enough to that it like he was never annoying, right? Yeah. He was consistently funny. And then when he had to be more serious, he was like, I guess, a very good kind of mentor slash role model to Anna Kendrick's character. Mm-hmm. And I just really liked the writing for his character. And I was really sad when like we didn't see him again. I think more towards the end of the movie slash like in the third movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think third is probably. I don't know. Okay, this is going to sound weird, but I loved the cover of... Remember in the third one when Haley Steinfeld like invites them to, for a reunion, but it turns out to be they're performing, like the, yeah. the old Bellas are performing? I just really liked that song. I think the cover was really good. And, like, Do you the way it was, what song it was? It's, like, it's the one that's like, I don't want to sit still, look pretty, you know, like that. Gotcha. I just really like it. And it's probably my favorite like covered song in the whole thing, despite mm-hmm. the third one being like, you know, very rough well i would say that like the third one the cover of toxic in the third one is really good but that's because i have yet personally to hear a cover of toxic that i dislike (laughs) like yeah it's such a it's such a banger that it's it's really hard to mess up 
and they try. I feel like in the third one they try to mess it up and it doesn't work. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, it was it was actually surprisingly good too. I think the third might have had like like yeah, two of the best covers in the series. Mm-hmm. Probably just because like they had better music producers by the end. Right. And a lot more money, but yeah. Anyways, yeah. Those are probably my three highlights for sure. Okay. So I think like obviously we got to talk about all three of these movies. Do you want to just like go into it? Like, I don't think we need to summarize these movies. If you haven't seen Pitch Perfect, they're pretty straightforward movies. Girl joins an acapella club and then we continue with the acapella club. Like that's a basic summary. Mm-hmm. But like, do you want to talk about, uh, what were your thoughts? I guess let's start with just the first movie. What are your thoughts on the first movie? Uh, first movie was just like a really solid intro. I think mm-hmm. it leaned into a lot of like very generic tropes. I guess I didn't mind that much just because I think the setting of the acapella club was kind of interesting. The performances by some of the the ensemble cast kind of save it. Like I wouldn't say they were great performances, but like I do think the cast has a certain level of chemistry. Like even now, like I guess specifically now like after seeing Eternals, there's like I very much missed the the feeling of a true ensemble cast working together. And that is something the pitch perfect, at least the first, uh, the first one does really well. And it makes up for a lot of like the very cliche moments and stuff. Uh, and they fall into like a lot of the basic like university movie tropes, I guess. But yeah. But I think it, it really uses and comments on those tropes really well. Like, I mean, it's a tropey movie by design. It's supposed to be easy to watch because the main point of it is basically just to like show off that all of these actors can sing because at the time, like Rebel Wilson wasn't really that well known. Anna Kendrick was still a very small name. I would say that I'm blanking on the names, but all of the people who play the Bellas have since become pretty big names and especially on Broadway, actually, like a lot of the people in this movie have been on Broadway since, mm-hmm. uh, especially most notably, in my opinion, Ben Platt, who plays the roommate of the love interest from the first movie. Mm-hmm. He did this movie before he did a Broadway play called Dear Evan Hansen, which is like huge now. Dear oh, Evan well. Hansen is like one of the biggest Broadway plays certainly recently, maybe ever. And um, he did that like two years after this. So I'm not going to say he was, I I think he may have been an unknown before Pitch Perfect. Mm. It's hard to say what he was doing on Broadway at the time, but. That's cool. Yeah. So this movie just sort of like, it leans into a lot of those. It really knows that it's leaning into these high school tropes too, because um, a major plot point of this movie revolves around Becca, who's who's Anna Kendrick's character and uh, her love interest, Jessie, I guess. She doesn't watch a lot of movies. So Jessie's like, you have to see The Breakfast Club, which I mean, as someone who's seen The Breakfast Club and doesn't like it that much, I'm like, do you though? (laughs) But like The Breakfast Club is like the high school trope movie or this is university, I guess, but it's like the high school coming of age trope movie. And so... A lot of this movie, just like a subplot of it is Becca watching The Breakfast Club. So it's like this this movie knows exactly what it is. It knows that it's trying to be all of those university slash coming of age tropes. And I think that when it leans into them, it does them really well because it uses those to really show off its ensemble cast and that they can, you know, embody these characters really well. I I guess you're right. I never thought of like it. It using the Beck Breakfast Club as kind of a meta reference to itself. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I also think the in terms of like the creative journey for Becca, like I had that that was one of the more interesting parts of the movie for me because before I like it, it does reference how like acapella is like a lot of just like covering, but then mm-hmm. they have they actually have a really cool way of like mixing up acapella. I don't know if that's like a common technique in acapella itself, but like it was a cool way of giving Becca. It was a very creative way of giving Becca like a unique purpose and addition to the Bellas, right? And that really ties into the climax because um it was a very easy way of showing why they were they won and were a step ahead of the other teams because they introduced a creative way of performing if that makes sense compared to everyone else yeah um, because for as, as like you know a casual um acapella watcher like <laughs> it's very hard for me to distinguish like why certain ones are better than others but like that that showed it for sure at the end and i think helped the climax and also really highlighted Anna Kendrick's, I guess, creative and personal story arc, if that makes sense. Especially the way they tied in the Breakfast Club thing. Because they sing the Breakfast Club song. I'm um, sorry, I can't remember the name of the song, but it... Don't You Forget About Me by the Simple Minds. Don't You Forget About Me. They play it, or they, they sing it in, in the finale as part mm-hmm. of their performance. So it, it was a very good way of uh, tying it up. But yeah, like, I, I think the tropes, like, like, I hated the love story in this. I think some of the characters were kind of annoying in this. I, I wish some arcs kind of completed more, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think the Becca's roommate thing was just really weird and like never resolved anything. And it wasn't really funny in the first place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I thought the whole radio thing was like a little played out. Just everything to do with like, honestly, Becca's personal life. I didn't like that much. <laughs> Actually, uh, and I guess this doesn't have to do with Becca's personal life. So this is kind of just sidestepping. But what I really liked, especially in the first one, is the main, the leader of the Bellas, her name was Aubrey in the movie. I don't remember Mm -hmm. who played her, or I don't know the name of the person who played her. Aubrey and, (sighs) okay, I got to look up the people who played these. But the leader of the Bellas and the leader of uh, of the other acapella group had a really interesting dynamic. So Aubrey Poson, who's played by Anna Camp, she's the leader of the Bellas. And the leader of the Troublemakers is Bumper Allen, played by Adam Devine. So anyway, I really liked how those two, um, I thought they paralleled each other really well. Because the very first thing the movie shows us is the Bellas' tired routine that they do all the time, which with like, they have their set list that is specific. They have their extremely lame choreography. No one likes it. And like, if ever Aubrey gets nervous, she like projectile vomits everywhere, which is super gross, but kind of funny. It was kind of funny. And meanwhile, the Treblemakers, which are the other, the other uh, acapella group led by Bumper, they're just really good. Like that's just all they do. They're not like special in the way that the Bellas end up being special. Like they don't do anything interesting. They just are very good performers and they do a different set list every time. And so they start from a place of being like right on top where the Bellas are like at the bottom. And by the end, we've switched that. And I think the way that they do that is really interesting because as you already said, like Anna Kendrick's character has purpose in this movie. She like brings a lot to the Bellas. But another thing is a big subplot of this movie involves Aubrey sort of learning to let go and be less controlling of the Bellas and like accept other opinions and treat them all as a family, not as employees. And she's by the end of the movie, it's hard for her to do that, but she has character growth to the point where she can do that. Like Mm -hmm. 
by the end of the movie, she's like, all right, I'm going to let go and let's, you know, work together as a team. Meanwhile, Bumper, he's really good. And then by the end of the movie, he like literally before the final performance, he's like, hey, don't care about you guys. I got a deal to be a backup singer for John Mayer. So I'm going to go. And he just like bounces right before the final performance because he doesn't care about his teammates at all. So like Aubrey learns to like goes from being the kind of person that Bumper would is at the end to treating everyone like a family where Bumper doesn't have character growth because he's the bad guy. But like he goes to, by the end, he just shows that like he actually doesn't care about anybody and leaves his entire team in the dark, which is a big reason why the troublemakers lose. Because yes, by the end, the Bellas have like, they are the better performers in the end. But a big part of that is that the troublemakers are like, they do okay, but they lost their star guy right at the end, right before they go on. And I thought that that, the the parallels between those two were really well done. I think there's a lot going on in the first Pitch Perfect that like, even though it's not that challenging of a movie exactly, it just executes a lot of things really well. Yeah, I I just want to say quickly with the bumper thing, I I guess like I liked your explanation thematically for why they did it. I, I really didn't think it worked from like, a plot level just because it takes so much out of the climax in terms of like you kind of knew they would already win like obviously mm-hmm. it's like it was a very like or it's a feel-good movie like you're not going to watch the bellas lose at the end but like the final performance is like because they focus so much time on making you hate bumper and in a good way right like he's a very yeah. fun villain to hate right mm-hmm. so once he leaves it, it makes sense character-wise, but for the climax, it takes so much out of it because you don't really know anyone, like, you don't hate anyone else on the other team, the Troublemakers, because Anna Kendrick's dating one of them, and then the other one had this weird subplot where he was very shy, didn't want to sing, and then has made the leader out of nowhere. Well, he's not made the, the leader, he's just, like, not brought leader, in. Yeah, he's yeah. brought in. But I didn't like it that much. I think it really... Because I, I think the biggest payoff for Adam Devine's character, theoretically, would have been seeing him lose which would have mm-hmm. felt really good, but we didn't get that. So it felt kind of like the Bellas deserved to win, but also like it didn't feel like an earned win because they didn't beat the Troublemakers like at their peak, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. But yeah, anyways, that's, it's like small. I, like either way, like the, I think the climax works out relatively well. Well, I agree with you because like thematically, I really like that. Mm-hmm. But as you said, they don't, we don't get the satisfaction of seeing them beat the Troublemakers. We yeah. get the satisfaction of seeing them win. The yeah. troublemakers are basically a non-entity at the end because, well, they lost their main guy. Yeah. If it ended at the first pitch perfect, you would assume Adam Devine actually went on to have a relatively successful career, which is mm-hmm. it's surprising considering like how feel good the movie wants to be. It's weird that they like kind of let the villain win in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of things that I like in theory, but not in practice... Pitch Perfect 2, one of the main plots of this, specifically Anna Kendrick's plot in this movie, concerns her trying to produce an original song. Mm -hmm. And I think that thematically, this is a really cool evolution of a character because in the first one, like, like she takes the Bellas out of their tired, like, we do this set list, we do this choreography, this is the same thing we've done for 20 years, this is what we're going to do now. And she, like, mixes it up in an interesting way by bringing in her mashups, basically. But then in the second one, uh, she's trying to get a job as a producer 
and she can only do mashups. And her producer's like, I don't like this. Just, you know, you have to have an original song. You have to have an original voice. What you are doing is covers and mashups, which are not interesting. So like she has to find that original voice. And I think that thematically, that's a really cool evolution of a character. I really hate the song. The song is so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like the generic, worst thing right? about these movies. Like it's generic. It's not good. It sat like Haley Steinfeld is like, hey, I wrote this original song, and she's what seventeen in the movie mm-hmm. context. And it's like, yeah, it does feel like it was written by a seventeen-year-old. Yes. Yeah, it, it's a very weird plot line that doesn't really go anywhere. It, it, I guess it goes anywhere. In, it goes somewhere in terms of. Anna Kendrick's like character arc and that like she's graduating and she has something to move on to mm-hmm. and she has found an original voice like you said but it doesn't feel like it feels very disconnected from the rest of the movie except for the fact that it ties into how she feels conflicted as in, in her priorities which is kind of interesting mm-hmm. to see displayed but yeah I, I like I do like the second one a lot just because I feel like it ditches a lot of what annoyed me in the first one and kind of increases the cringy like it, it it embraces some of the more corny aspects of the first one in a better way i think the second one is like it's easily more jokes per minute and on a on a scene to scene basis the second one is way funnier i don't think it's as good as the first one because i think that like the first one doesn't take itself seriously but it takes itself as seriously as it needs to and the second one i think like pretty much falls back more or less entirely on the jokes and so it feels like it feels like it doesn't have as much heart as the first one does to me Mm. that's fair i i guess i can see what you mean but i just i actually think it it had more interesting like emotional moments i love the scene when they go to camp for example i think that was a very good moment in the series just to have the characters bounce off each other Mm-hmm. Um, and, and kind of their low point and connect, especially with like discussions of what they're going to do in the future, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. And like you said, yeah, it, it was a lot funnier. Um, like you said, the Green Bay Packers, like that whole scene was just so ridiculous, mm-hmm. but like still like kind of funny with the the whole, what, the, like you said, the, I love how Bumper came back as like <laughs> one of the acapella members of like the, the the old people basically like yeah i can't remember what they're called but especially because oh, like there was a bunch of funny makers, com- tone makers something like that yeah but there was like a bunch of funny comedians on that team too that reggie really... watts is there i think <clears throat> yeah reggie watts is there as well from the roots right yeah and that was just a really fun scene um there's there's there are moments like like i think that it doesn't work i, I don't really like the start at all like the whole thing for president obama like it was just I think it's kind a very of, contrived way to start it. Yeah, like you, it was just really obvious. Like the the footage of Obama was like filmed in like half a second, and <laughs> like yeah, and it was just a very odd cameo. They could have just made it like it was a televised performance where they something bad happened, but like the the it was just too ridiculous for me in like a a very like weird way because it was like it was embracing like how mainstream Pitch Perfect was, mm-hmm. and like. It felt a little too meta, if that makes sense. I don't know. But yeah, anyways, I, I, I personally don't like like presidential cameos and stuff like that in media in general. So I might be biased, but... Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they they ditch a lot. I'm, I'm really happy they ditch a lot of the love angles and stuff like that in this. Although I agree, I thought that the romantic subplot in the first one just wasn't... All, it had some interesting stuff, like the entire Breakfast Club plot comes from the romantic subplot. Mm. But like in general, it wasn't that great in the first one. So I'm glad it's not in the second one. But what I didn't like is I did like that actor who played the romantic interest and he's basically not even in the second one. He is there, but he's like barely there. It would have been nice to see him a little more, even if it was just like more presence from the Troublemakers because he's still in the Troublemakers, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Troublemakers were very much like a non-issue in this movie. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I I didn't mind him not being in this movie. And I liked how they didn't make it like a like uh, they broke up or whatever like he was still part of her life um just in much more of a i'm here for you capacity rather than like shoving him into the plot and giving him something to do which would probably in this case be they are having relationship issues or something like that which i would have really not liked what was really nice about pitch like pitch perfect one delves a lot into becca's personal life but pitch perfect two doesn't because the point of pitch perfect to like her main plot in this movie the more important part are her career goals so like it talks about her career a lot but it doesn't really delve into her personal life except where it absolutely has to yeah that's true yeah anyways the i don't know i, I like this movie i thought it was mm-hmm. i thought it was my favorite one personally oh i just want to say the german team was really cool too i never had thought of acapella as like a visual medium but i thought the whole aspect of the the Bella's trying to mimic their very visual and like intense style was really cool. Um, and I loved watching their performances, honestly. Like they felt very unique to me. Um, and added a lot of layers to the sport of acapella, I guess. Mm-hmm. Probably the least believable part of this movie, and like this movie's absurd. There's a lot of not believable parts. But the least believable part of this movie for me is at the very end, they apparently beat the German team. And like, no, the German team was just better unequivocally <laughs> yeah in every way I because agree, they're yeah. literally professional acapella it's like you can't beat that especially not if you're a university team yeah the ending didn't feel very believable like the first one you could definitely tell why they won this one was like i it could have gone definitely towards the germans but like i think also the biggest thing that bothered me about this movie and it plays into the ending as well they really 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 try to push this song flashlight by Haley Steinfeld's character. Oh, it's just really bad. It's not a good song. (laughs) Yeah, unfortunate. But I guess, was this Haley Steinfeld's kind of first big movie? I don't know. Did this kind of launch her career too? It was probably a breakout role for her. I know she had acted before, but yeah. She was also, I I liked that arc of the, like having one new member and kind of raising her, I guess, was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Oh, also, uh, yeah, Keegan-Michael Peel was amazing. Or Keegan-Michael Key was amazing in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyways. So what do you think of the third one? That <laughs> so, like, yeah, the third one is just such an anomaly because you can tell they had no plot. I felt like no one really wanted to be there. No story to tell. It, it sold out a lot more. And just, yeah, I don't know. Like, and I hate how it, it just feels so disconnected from the other two, if that makes sense. Like, the second one felt like a direct successor. Yeah. This one was like, they all, all their lives suck again. Like, nothing matters. And, like, they have to, like, kind of, like, rebuild. But also, it's the end. And it's very confusing to me. Because 
once this movie ends, it, it feels like all their lives are going to go back to shit again, if that makes sense. So what I really respect about the third one is that it is extremely different from the first two. And hold on, I'm going to, I'm going to continue <laughs> with that statement. It's extremely different from the first two on the surface, because like the third one is a heist movie kind of, which is super weird. And so I respect that, like they try to do something very different, but what I don't respect about the third one is actually the exact opposite of that. It is, it tries to be exactly the same as the other two while putting on a different skin, basically. Mm-hmm. Because like the third one, as you said, it resets them back to all of them are losers for some reason. It has a riff off in it because that's just a thing you do in Pitch Perfect movies now. At the very end, there's a big acapella competition because that's what you do in Pitch Perfect movies now. I mean, it just rehashes so many of the, of the things from the earlier Pitch Perfect movies but like with no purpose, they're just really forced in and it's very strange. I think someone wanted to do a pitch perfect movie, but didn't want to do the first two again and then ended up doing the first two again anyway. I don't know if there was like a better idea on the writing team of this or not, because this sounds like someone, I, I, this, this to me, this movie felt to me like someone really just had that thought and it ended there. Like, I want to do third pitch perfect movie, but I don't want to just do the second, the first two again. But not like that they had an interesting idea for a third one. They just had the idea that they don't want to do the first two again. And so they made whatever this is, <laughs> which is basically the first one again at the end of the day, which is very strange to me. Yeah, they they bring in the whole, like, that contrived plot line of, like, the army has, like, a music contest for the troops or something like that. And you can just tell it's complete, like, BS, right? It's not, even, like, for a movie, it's just, it's it's such a weird way to force it into the movie. Especially the way it's mentioned. It's like, oh, yeah, my dad's, like, in the army. And coincidentally, they're, like, hosting this huge, like, music tournament for people. We should participate, you know? It's basically, like, a contrived way of getting them to compete but also in a in different environments with like more locations that can make the movie interesting but yeah especially because like the <laughs> in the ripoff because they're not competing against other acapella bands they're competing against other bands right yeah and there's like in the riffoff scene it's it's just very weird that the other bands would be doing acapella at all much less like you know compete i don't know it was just very I wish I liked I like you said I like the aspects where they the most memorable parts for me were was the whole ridiculous plot line with Rebel Wilson's dad John wait what's mm-hmm. his name uh, John Lithgow John Lithgow kidnapping like being a, a mass criminal and kidnapping the team and they have to sing their way out of out of that situation that was actually kind of funny that's probably the best part of the movie yeah it's very it's, silly <clears throat> but like in in a way that's fun and interesting. Yeah, and it's definitely more like because like the whole yeah the whole tournament thing and Anna Kendrick's like love interest slash like success with DJ Khaled like plot line was just so bad and like it felt like such a rehash of the first two and unnecessary. I wish they embraced the more ridiculous parts of it because like it's like they knew they had no story. Yeah, and they were starting to make something that was just completely like ridiculous and embrace that. But then they were like, oh no, wait, let's backtrack. 
and add these moments to it to the core of the movie and then also have these ridiculous moments and it just felt like a mess and it didn't mm-hmm. really track very well for me yeah I, and I also know. what's a weird plot line through through these movies in the first movie john michael higgins and elizabeth banks play uh, i mean they always play the commentators but in the first one it's like they're employed by the intercollegiate uh, acapella association or something like that and they're just mm-hmm. the commentators for their events in the second one they host a podcast and then by the third one they're doing like a documentary but like they clearly have no funding for this documentary they're just like <laughs> crazy acapella fans yeah. which like i don't get it but it's kind it's a pretty funny way of like including their characters although they always seem forced in i don't mind it because they're the best characters in the movies mm-hmm. but like it's really strange what's i i kind of want to know what's going on in the background there yeah well they just really wanted them in the movie somehow so they found a way i guess but it, it was like i i'm happy they were there they were what again one of, one of the best parts of the movies mm-hmm. and they kind of saved some of the scenes for me i guess for sure but yeah can i just say dj Khaled in this was really like he he can't act and also there was so much like praising of dj like they made him out to be like this like godly entity in the movie and i just couldn't mm-hmm. i couldn't stand it dude it was it was really hard to watch at the risk of never getting dj Khaled on our podcast i do not like dj Khaled. <laughs> yeah this movie did not help things for me either like i didn't no. really like him that much before and this kind of kind of cemented it for me but yeah i i don't know it's just like a weird way to send off the trilogy I feel like Anna Kendrick's just kind of, especially in the climax, it was kind of weird because I thought it would have been made more sense almost thematically to not have the rest of the Bellas perform and Anna Kendrick to kind of like move on and like the rest of the Bellas being okay with not performing anymore. But then Mm -hmm. they still all perform together and it made no sense because like when DJ Khaled be really pissed if like his opener was Anna Kendrick or Becca and then like she just brought along everyone else and they started acapella-ing. It was just weird to me. And like, obviously, I don't know what I expected from this movie, but I get why they did it. But it just felt like a very weird way like to be like, oh, everyone's moving on, but also like, not really. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did like the, even though it was terrible, I did like the John Lithgow plot line. He actually brought a lot to the movie too. I loved his character. He, he, mm-hmm. he put a lot of heart into the performance, um, surprisingly, which was, yeah, very cool. He didn't have to. Um, no, he he really didn't. Uh, <laughs> like I love that part in like when they're doing the toxic cover where he's kind of like getting into it, sorta, but then also like I'm gonna kill you in like five minutes or something. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, it was not a great movie. Yeah, unfortunate. So, like, without re-ranking every movie that we've seen so far, where would you put this in terms of like how good these this trilogy is versus um. And, and how good Anna Kendrick is in this trilogy. And, like, you can split up the trilogy if you need to, or you can just rate it all as one. I definitely say, like, in terms of Anna Kendrick, these are, like, top tier. Like, she's a big part of why these movies work, and it really showcases her her potential, I guess, as an actress. Mm-hmm. Even though, like, I can't really pinpoint in these movies why I like her so much. There's so much craziness around her, right? And she's like a very solid straight man while also being mm. very charismatic and interesting, um, yeah. relatable. So 
I think in, in that case, these are definitely like her best movies because these again, these like not many of the movies we've seen <laughs> showcase her talents that much, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, as movies in general, I think these are. I mean, the third one's pretty low, but like the first and second are relatively upper tier. They're just very easy, fun watches. Um, I'd rank the first one maybe a six out of ten. The second one a seven out of ten. Um, you kind of get what you expect. Um, and you are very pleasantly surprised at times by mm-hmm. some of the comedy and some of the moments and some of the heart that's put into the movies. So, yeah. Yeah. I just reverse those rankings in my opinion. Like I would give the first mm. one a seven and the second one a six, mm. um, I but I'd still say that they're pretty high. I thought you were going to put three on top. For a second, like... No, no, no. Three is pretty, <laughs> pretty three low, is like yeah. one of the worst movies we've watched for this yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Although like, as we've talked about, three has some interest, has some good stuff in it. It's just overall not, it's a mess as a movie. Mm-hmm. But then I would say in terms of Anna Kendrick performances, this is just on top. Like, of the stuff we've watched so far. Technically, we've seen her be this good as an actor before because, I mean, she's very naturally charismatic anyway. And she's had some roles where she's just like really good in the role. But this is the first time where we see her like, carry a movie and like be the lead role in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, these movies just prove that she can do that. And I, I really appreciate that. So I would put in terms of Anna Kendrick performance, this is on top. Yeah. As for where these movies place in terms of like movies, pitch perfect is probably right below Scott Pilgrim and end of watch for me so mm-hmm. far. That makes sense. Yeah. Oh, can I just say quickly? I love how, you know, those two characters, they never like, they never mention or show and they keep popping up randomly is like oh uh jessica and ashley yeah and no one ever knows like which, which one, one is, is jessica and which one is ashley i love how they really dedicate themselves to that like not even in the third movie i thought they like theoretically might get like a plot moment or something like that in one of the movies just to like it'd be like a good way of wrapping it up i guess they they never show they never show them no. do anything interesting. I think that's really funny. They have a single joke deve- dedicated to them in every single movie, and it's always the same joke. And I really really love how they committed to it. Non, it was very it was kind of cliche, but then they ended in a non cliche way, and I I liked it a lot. I just yeah, just that. so you know, these guys are not characters. Moving on. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. That was, that's pit, the Pitch Perfect trilogy. Yeah, holy crap. We actually did talk about that for as long as we talked I'm about very it. surprised, yeah. <laughs> I had way more opinions on the series than I thought. So, yeah. yeah, well, that concludes our longest episode so far, but I'm very excited for our next episode because now that we've talked about Anna Kendrick in what are kind of three musicals, we're going to keep doing that. We're going to talk about her in another musical next week. Next week, we're doing Into the Woods. We've got a very exciting. special guest for that one. Very exciting. Is that the one with... Uh, what's her name? When an, like, was nominated for an Oscar? Uh, the Meryl one that's always... Yeah, Meryl Streep or something. Was she nominated for an Oscar in that? I mean, she's always nominated <laughs> for an Oscar. I yeah, definitely exactly. would not be surprised. I was, I was like... I, I vividly remember that movie because there was some weird Meryl Streep thing to do with it. Because, yeah, she's always nominated for something. But, yeah. Anyways. Anyway, we'll talk about Meryl Streep next week, too. See you next time. Another one.